So I'm thinking that I want to go to the Nerf War at the junior, senior high. Whew. How come they didn't do that when I was a kid? We studied the Ten Commandments. That's what we did in youth. I'm not jealous. Hey, I thought last weekend was a good weekend in this house. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. So many great things. Enjoyed the worship time. John Newfeld here leading us and how special that was. Um, and then Sunday night, our healing night, uh, which was really, really powerful. And I want to share with you some of the things that God did that night that you need to know about. Uh, we had a lot of people here. Um, think of this amount of people plus more. It was very full, and uh, there were many lives touched by Jesus. And from the testimony sheets that were turned in and the people we talked to when we ministered to them, uh, we know that there were a lot of people that were touched in their bodies. So probably, and the recent update is uh, 12 fully healed, and uh, probably another 18 or so uh, partially healed. And, uh, and still God working this week in people, and, and we trust that even this morning some of you are still claiming for that and believing for that. And uh, God's just seemed to move in a very, very powerful way. And here's some of the stories I'll share with you. I won't share all of them, but um, celiac was healed and tested. Extropia, which is lazy eyes. There were a person with two eyes that were wandering, and that was immediately straightened out. Uh, broken collarbone, uh, bones and feet straightened, arthritis in the hands, heart arrhythmia and an edema. Uh, that person did squats first time in five years. So that's just a sample. Can we praise God for what he did? Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. He is a God who heals. And uh, there are those of you who are still waiting for your healing. I want to say to you, keep pressing in. Uh, it's not over. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he wants to bless you. And I also want to remind you, if you've not yet been healed, he loves you. He loves you. And he will be with you, and he's going to give you grace in the meantime. And you can always come up to the front here any Sunday, and our ministry team will pray uh, for you. I um, also want to mention that celiac has been healed in our church four times since June. All right? There's been four people here who have had extreme food allergies and or celiac gone. Uh, and so if you're here and you have that allergy or that, that condition, trust God for what is going around here. He is setting people uh, completely free from celiac and food allergies. And I also want to mention that um, we gave some words of knowledge out on uh, Sunday night. We released a, a few moments where, where God had highlighted some people to some of our prophetic people in the church. They had been praying about that. We met in my office. We discerned. We filtered. We came back with what we felt was the, the words of knowledge. And three times at the beginning, a word of knowledge was given and no one stood up. And if you were here, you might have thought, well, that was a little awkward. You'd tell me about it. <laughs> it was very awkward. And we went on through the night, and then other words were given, and people stood up, and, and Jesus highlighted them, and he did a work in their lives. And then I want you to know this. At the end of the night, by the end of the evening, every one of those three people that didn't stood up, they came and talked to us and said, I was the person uh, that you had mentioned, and I have that condition. So God had landed that word on them. And we're encouraged about that. And we're learning lots about how the Holy Spirit wants to encourage the body through things like that. Anyways, we're celebrating all that. We're hoping that maybe next week, if we can get it together, we might be able to put a package of CDs for those of you who want to buy a set on The God Who Heals. You can pick it up in the foyer if we have it ready. 
uh, and then you can go over it again or give it to a friend or do whatever you want with it. All right, I want you to turn now in your Bibles to a great passage in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and chapter 7, and you can also put a marker in Psalm 132, Psalm 84. I'm going to highlight some other passages, but I won't even mention them because, well, actually I will mention them because some of you I think want to go there. Genesis 28, Revelation 1, Matthew 17, and if you've forgotten them already, don't worry, we'll prompt you again, but I know some of you, you like to plan ahead and get engaged and get those passages marked in your iPad or your, or your Bible, your printed Bible, and that's great. We're back in a series that we left uh, just before summer, and it's called The Pursuit, and we we're looking at the life of King David. We didn't get all the way through the major highlights of his life, but we wanted to take a break from it, and we committed to uh, coming back to that series this fall, so uh, there's a few more messages that we want to cover here, and we're calling it Pursuit Number 2. And David in the Old Testament has really helped us a lot about knowing what it means to be passionate about God. I mean, he's called the man after God's own heart. And I don't know of a, a person in the Scriptures who does it better than David, who really knows how to focus his life on the most important things. And if you missed any of that series that we did up until June, you can listen to it or watch it. It's on our website. Take advantage of that. But we left off with David having become king of Israel and Judah. And now he's a bit older. Um, he's a bit wiser. He's had some incredible experiences along the way. And you might remember some of the things that have shaped him, right? When he was just a little boy, the prophet Samuel came to his house and was looking for someone to anoint with oil to be the next king, and Jesse had eight sons, and David was the last. And uh, Samuel said, go get that last kid. And they brought in David, and the Lord said to Samuel, arise and anoint him, he is the one. And so David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, set apart to be king, while he was just little. And then you might remember the story of David taking on that big, nine-foot-tall giant, what was his name? Goliath, yeah, the guy that eats people for breakfast, so to speak, proverbially, and, uh, and David took him on, right, because he saw him defying the armies of the living God, and he went and got his sling, and he, he swung it, and he let that rock loose, and he said, the battle belongs to the Lord, and that stone knocked the giant down, killed him dead, and then everybody knew, wow, there's, a, there's, a, there's an anointing of God's power upon David. And there's been other experiences he's had. He's learned to deal with fools, and he's learned to deal with generals and renegades, and he's been living on the run from King Saul. Now he's 30 years of age, and he has drawn to himself a, a small army of men, and Judah and Israel both have anointed him to be king over them. And this is a great moment in his life. But David is not satisfied. You know why? He wants something to happen for the people of God that's, that hasn't happened since they were in the wilderness. And that is he wants there to be a worship experience for the people of God to encounter the presence of God. And so he makes a bold, courageous decision about that. And it's in our passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 6 at verse 1. And it's titled, at least in my Bible, uh, The Ark Brought to Jerusalem. All right? So words will be on the screen. Here's what the Scriptures say. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. 
He and all his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up the, there from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And we'll stop our reading there. This is a major moment of celebration for David and the people of Israel. And they're so excited because finally the presence of God can be brought in their midst and Jerusalem will become the main place where the worship will take place and all of the tribes of Israel can gather together right there. And and it, it was no small thing because God in those days would show up by his presence in a small little contained area called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, which was sort of like tents, there was this thing called the ark. Now, when I say ark and you think Bible, you think Noah, right? You think animals going in the ark two by two. That's one ark in the Bible, but there's another ark. It's called the ark of the covenant. And the ark of the covenant is this carefully designed, uh, constructed box made out of wood that is overlaid with gold, and then carved uh, angels were on the side, and inside of that box were three things. Let's test your biblical knowledge. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, the Ten Commandments were there, the the two tablets, and then the golden jar of manna, little sample, right, from wilderness days, and then Aaron's rod that budded. Those were all kept in in the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, the Ark of the Covenant was, was kind of like where God would dwell in his power and in his presence and in his glory. And they called it the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And so David knows all this, and he's longing for that Ark to come back into Jerusalem. It's been out in the wilderness just kind of hanging out somewhere. And so he plans this big national celebration. Probably 40,000, 50,000 people come out for it. People are singing, playing guitar, playing flutes, tambourines. They're, they're just going all out. They're dancing. And uh, it's an extravagant moment for the people of Israel. In Psalm uh, 132, we have a parallel version of what happened there. Here's what it says. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. Uh, We came upon it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. This is a very big deal for the people of God. Now the nation can be centered on the presence of God. And I would put it up there with other experiences that were monumental, like you know the uh, call of Abraham and uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and now we have the Ark of God, right? The Ark of the Living God, his, where his presence would dwell. Is, it's now coming up to Jerusalem. It's a big moment. And, and I think as we take this passage in, it, it might want us 
uh, to ask the question, do I really long for the presence of God myself? You know, as I'm looking at David, I see that he longed for it. I see that the people longed for it. Do I really care about this? And am I longing for the presence of God? And let's not just give a nice, quick, you know, sort of clean Christian answer to that because we're sitting in a box called a church. (laughs) But let's answer it honestly. Do I long for the presence of God? Not even just corporately, in my own individual life. Am I, am I one of those people that can't live without the presence of God? I think that should be us. And we should pursue God's presence every day, all day long. Not just when we're here in this kind of gathering, it includes that, but also when we're doing our work and we're with our family and, and everything else. When we gather together in the name of Jesus, his presence is with us. And so I think David was showing us some early uh, leanings in that direction and some, some things that we can understand about the presence of God. Here's some things I think that we should underscore about it. There's really three ways that God's presence uh, is revealed in this world. And one of them is the omnipresence. The second one is his internal presence in the believer. And the third is his manifest presence. And, you know, God dwells everywhere. So there's nowhere in this world where he is not. In Psalm 139, it says, you know, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths of the earth, you're there. doesn't matter where I go. God is everywhere. That's his omnipresence. He's everywhere. And then there's his internal presence in the life of the believer. This is true for anyone who's been born of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. The living God, all of God lives in you. Through his spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it tells us that we as believers are now the temple of the living God. And then there's one more expression of his presence in this world, and we can call it the revealed presence of God or the manifest presence of God. And uh, that's those moments when his people are gathered together like this, and we're in the name of Jesus, and we're here to seek him, his presence is amongst us. He said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. And it also can happen in our own personal lives that the presence of God can come upon us. Now, if you're a believer, you already have the presence of God within you. And you might say, well, I've got it all. And you do. So I don't need the other presence. Well, actually, you do. Because the scriptures say that there are moments when God wants to come upon you. And he's doing something else. And it's just another way that he works in us and around us and through us. So we need all three. That's the point. And there are times, I think, that we have to ask ourselves, do we recognize the presence of God when it's there? Because I think at times we can miss it. I know I miss it at times. And my wife will say to me, did you sense that? And I'll go, nope. And she'll be like, yeah, you missed it. There are times that we miss the moment and we go, I didn't really recognize that that was God talking or that was God's presence in the room or that was God doing that. And we just want to align ourselves more and more to the reality that when God is revealing himself, we want to be all in, right? We want to absorb it all because he's revealing himself for a purpose. It's not just to make us feel good, all right? And there's a whole feel-good thing of the presence and, and we can get kind of, you know, focused on that, but it's not just to make us feel good, even though he loves us. It's for a purpose that goes beyond that. Jacob, in Genesis 28, had an encounter with God, and it was, it was pivotal in shaping the rest of his life. 
he's uh, journeying around in those days outside, and he decides to go to sleep at night. He lays his head on a rock, no pillow, and he has this dream, you know, and he sees heaven opened, and he sees the angels of God uh, uh, ascending and descending over him. And God speaks to him in that moment in the dream, and, and then he wakes up, and this is what he says. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Huh. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. There are moments when God reveals himself to us by his presence and we want to recognize them. I think that means that we should be spiritually dialed in all the time so that when the signs of his presence are, are around us, we go, oh, that, that's God. It's time to recognize him. And I know he's with us all the time because he's omnipresent. And I know he lives in our lives as believers because the Holy Spirit's already there. But there are also other times, there are other times when he kind of visits his people in special ways. Well, everything's going good for David on this march up to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant till something uh, not so good happens. And if you snuck ahead and read, you already know what's going to be shared here. But take a look with me at verse 6, 2 Samuel 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath that it had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? It's not the way it was supposed to be. David is stunned by what happened. And no doubt he would be. He had this great celebration plan. We're going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Everybody's going to gather around the manifest presence of God. But something happens that day and everything goes sideways. And if you know your biblical background, you probably have guessed already what was going on is David lets the sons of Abinadab move the ark. There's no clue given to us that they're Levites. Only Levitical priests could move that ark. And they had to move it on poles. They couldn't touch it. Anybody who touched it would be dead. David probably either forgot this, or he was being careless, um, or he was taking a risk. And so here they come out, and they start moving that ark, and then Uzzah sees the ark wobbling on the ark cart. He goes, oh, I better stop this. I mean, this is the box where God lives. He touches it, and he drops dead. You talk about the end of a party. Wow. Oh. Everything comes to a halt. 40,000 people go home. No ark arrives in Jerusalem. No worship revival at all. What a tragedy. If I was David, I would have shot myself probably. Said, ah, I'm done. I, I blew it so bad as king. I'm done. Somebody take out your arrow. Just, just drill one through my head. It's over. And there's a funeral for Aminadab's son. Can you imagine the family? There's such grief over what they've lost. What's the point in this? The point is God's presence is holy. And the only way we can get near it is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. None of us 
could ever enter into the presence of God if we were not covered and atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus. None of us. His glory is like a fire. And when anything comes into his presence that's unprotected, unatoned for, unholy, sinful, rebellious, it's dangerous. That's what's going on here that day. And yes, there should be, you know, emphasis made to uncover the celebration part here. We're going to actually get into that later in the text. But I want you to just linger for a while with me in this reality of how stunned the people were that day when the ark could not be moved. I remember 20 years ago, one of our Alliance missionaries came to Airdrie, the Holcombs from Guinea in Africa, and they told the story how they were, you know, in their missionary work, they were having communion with um, their tribal people that they were reaching, and, and they had prepared the bread and the cup on the kitchen counter of the house that they lived, and uh, the communion thing was later or the next day, and uh, they went out for a, a visit to some people. A witch doctor in the village heard about this and, and said to one of her devotees, I'm going to go in the house of the missionaries and I'm going to eat the flesh of the Christian God to show them how powerful I am. And she snuck in and she ate the bread and the cup. The missionaries came home later that afternoon they found her dead on the floor. Dead. Struck him down dead because of violating the presence of God. Wow. God is a holy God. And when people in the Bible encountered him in that way, they fell down. <laughs> you know, we sometimes wonder, why do people fall down in worship? It, it may be that it's an encounter with God that they're having that is so powerful, so overwhelming, they're like John on the island of Patmos. They're like, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Or it's like Isaiah in chapter 6 of his prophecy when he said, I had a vision of the Lord high and lifted up in the temple and the train of his robe filled the temple and the glory of God was there and he immediately said woe is me for I am undone I'm a man of unclean lips he had a he had a foul mouth as a prophet and so the angel takes the coal from the altar and cleanses his mouth and says your your sin is atoned for your guilt is atoned for there are other encounters in the bible when people met God and they they humbled themselves. They, they fell down. I think David is going, I get it. <laughs> I remember the verbal testimony of all those other things that I've heard about the presence of God. Now I remind myself, don't trifle with it. Don't be careless. And then we also see that that's not the whole picture. There is reverence and awe for the presence of God that is like fire. And there's also to be sheer joy and celebration and gladness in his presence. Both are legitimate. And his presence calls us and asks us to live there. I'm so glad that through Jesus we have access to it. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, that through the blood of Christ we can enter into the throne room of heaven and receive grace in our time of need. We can go straight into the throne room to the holy of holies through the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's another question. Am I passionately worshiping in the presence of God? Because we can worship God, and sometimes worship is all we can do, and it's just a pure act of the will, and there's nothing going on inside that says, I want to worship God, but we let our will carry us there. And yet there are other times when we should be passionately engaging God in his presence. Back to David. A few months goes by, and he realizes things have settled down a little bit, 
and um, he has a thought that maybe we should try this again to get that Ark of the Covenant brought to the city. So in verse 12 of chapter 6, it goes like this. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. Uh, That's where the Ark was sitting, by the way. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who had carried the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. I love that. (laughs) Six steps. Six is the number of man. And David says, stop. Just in case we're getting this wrong, do a sacrifice. All right, we do a sacrifice. Everybody, anybody, anybody dying? No? All right, we can go forward. I think God's going to let it happen. Verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So here we have this bold, celebratory expression of worship going on. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, daughter of Saul, that's David's estranged wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. This is a big moment now. The ark is now in the center of the city where the people of God can gather around it and the presence of God is with his people again. And we can picture David just really letting it loose that day. I mean, he's dressed like all the other young men. He's wearing a little ephod, little linen tunic kind of thing and not dressed like a king at all and he's jumping around and praising and, and moving and dancing and singing and shouting and all of that and And all the young guys are with him, and they're like, this is a great day for Israel. And he's really in the moment. And it's not every day that the ark of God comes into the city of God. So David wants to mark it well, and he models for everybody what I would call full engagement worship. David knows more than anyone that the presence of God will produce joy in our lives. Not just reverence and fear, holy fear, but also joy. And so he expresses that. And by the way, when we think about David here, I I think he's, by his example, he's calling us to to consider how can we worship God with full engagement? And I want to encourage you to think about yourself as being someone who's made up of three parts. You know the three parts of you, right? You have three elements that make you you. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And all three work together, and yet they're all distinct. And we're to worship God with our whole lives our entire beings. And in Psalm 84, which is one of the great uh, presence psalms, it says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Did you get that? My heart and my flesh, my physical body, cry out, For the living God. Verse 4 Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. The psalm writer is saying his heart's crying out for God, but also his physical body. Is that real? Well, I think it is. And the more that you study human makeup and the scriptures, you'll see that God has actually made us for himself. 
that that's our greatest purpose in life is to glorify him. And that we are at our best when every part of us is worshiping God. So that means my spirit, deep inside. That means my soul, which is mind, emotions, and will. And that means my body. All of those things are to come together in in an expression of heartfelt worship to God. So it's not just that I worship God with my mind, not just that I worship God with my lips, but I worship God with everything that makes up me. Psalm 63 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for God. I really believe there's a sense in which it's true that, that our physical lives are designed to be at their best in the presence of God. And so think of worship together as a very therapeutic experience. It's something that we should not miss because God does stuff and he meets needs. So does your whole life long for God's presence? How are you doing at worshiping in spirit, soul, body? And you might say, well, I have no problem worshiping in spirit. I can pray in the spirit. I can sing in the spirit. Uh, I can express devotion in the spirit. Uh, I can also, you know, worship with my soul. Well, let's get all of the soul here. Not just my mind, not just my will, but also my emotions, my affections. Are you saying that we should let our faith be led by our emotions? No, I'm not saying that. But our faith will lead the way through our will, and our emotions will be part of that. That the affection that we have for God should be released. And this is what the Psalms are all about. Expressing our affection to God, our longing, our desiring for him. And then we worship God with our bodies. What does that mean? Well, we have no option on that. You're in one. So even if you just sing with your mouth, you're worshiping God with part of your body. The biblical invitation is to use more than your mouth. It's to use your forehead and your eyes and your hands and everything else and let God know that you are all in. Oh God, I love you. My whole being longs for you. My body is dialed into you. That's, a, that's I think, a, a really clear biblical picture of worship. Well, David lets it loose that day, and uh, Michelle despises him, and uh, he has a little encounter with her about that, and he says, I'll be more undignified than this. (laughs) What else do you say to an estranged wife? (laughs) You know, and she gets barren, right? So the text says, she's barren for the rest of her days, because of that statement, because in a sense, she's cursing her estranged husband, cursing him. And David's like, I'm going to break that off. That's not going to land on me. There are people that will sneer at us when we worship and they'll say, you are just a little bit too much. You're getting a little bit too excited. Now, let me kind of pull us into another direction here and talk about some areas that I think we should be aware of as we're worshiping God that will help us to be at our best. Are you with me on that? Sound good? How to be at our best in worship. A couple things. First of all, I think we should look at the whole matter of distractions in worship. Things that suddenly happen that get our focus off of God and our focus on something else. And, you know, church services are notorious for this, and we, we try our best to keep the distractions to a, a minimum. And, the, you know, the human element that we're all part of, it just, it, there are moments that you can't stop things from happening, right? So, but distractions happen 
and some of us can do something about it. Um, so for instance, I'm just going to share with you something that I think people need to consider. You already got one of these? This thing can really uh, be part of your worship experience because you can get the scriptures here on a Bible app and you can follow along, and many of you do, and we're glad for that. Uh, there are people who take notes on their phone. My wife is one. She takes notes right on her phone of every sermon uh, that goes on here. Um, but, you know, there's other things that this phone does, too, in worship, right? It calls to you. It's like, check me out. You haven't looked at me for 18 minutes. Come on. And you're like, yeah, i got to get my phone out. Just look in. And, and all of a sudden, you're gone. You're gone. You're now no longer focused in worship. You're texting a friend, you're Facebook updating, you're doing whatever, you know, and, and uh, you've lost the moment. So, I, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't have it. I'm just saying um, there's a new spiritual discipline required. We're not in the monastic age anymore. It's called cell phone control. iPad control. Use them in worship. Take notes. Look at Bible verses. Of course, we're in the digital age. We're not going backwards. But don't let this thing control you and distract you. Do you think that you can last an hour and a half without doing a Facebook update? Huh, I hope so. Or getting a text. Like, I haven't gotten a text. You know that buzz you get? Yeah, I know. We've got a whole issue there with what we're dialed into. You know where I'm going. Um, by the way, if you're an emergency responder, please look at your phone when you need to. If you're on schedule and you're on call, we get it. We're not going to be mad at you. Just, we just trust you. But I want to help you remove some distractions from worship. Here's another one. If you have a lot of freedom in expressing worship, just ask yourself, is my freedom unnecessarily distracting others? Oh, is that possible? Yeah. Just ask your friends. And, and you might have tons of freedom to do things, say things, whatever, and, and that's fine. Is it helping the overall worship experience or is it just drawing attention to you? Think about that. Here's another one. When do you prepare for worship? You say, well, 11.05, 11.10 for a lot of people. <laughs> I have a suggestion for you. Best time to prepare for worship, Saturday night. Saturday night at home, wherever you are, come off work, whatever, just prepare your heart. Even, you know what, take five seconds. Lord, Prepare me for tomorrow. Just get my heart ready for whatever you want to say to me, do inside of me. I'm saying yes to it. Something as small as that, just, just kind of tuning into God can really help you to go to sleep right. And then you can get up in the morning and you can say, God, this is all about you. And, and you get your family ready or yourself ready. And you come to the gathering and you're like, okay, God, even as I'm driving here, Lord, this is going to be a good day. I'm expecting that you'll meet with me and I'll meet with you. Little things like that can prepare us so that once we're in here, we're not just having to overcome a whole bunch of barriers, right, and forgetting about work and, you know, kind of tuning out other things. We can just step into an encounter with the presence of God. I, I think that you guys get that. Here's the biblical ideal. We worship God in spirit and in truth with our bodies, souls, and spirits. That's really biblical. So I just say to you, take as much freedom as you can but also remember that we're a body and we do this together. And so let's edify one another in the choices we make. Also want to say don't let your upbringing or your tradition hold you back from freedom. Some people are 
raised in a tradition where they're like, you, you, when you worship God, you just stand still like this. And, and they've been told that. And, and you know what? You can still worship God like that. It, it, there's just more freedom. And I know people who are just not very demonstrative. They're not very expressive by nature. And they stand and they, they go like this and they close their eyes. They're in the throne room worshiping Jesus and it's awesome. And so I'm not criticizing them. I'm thinking, yeah, the Lord's meeting them. But I always encourage people, take as much real, authentic freedom as you can and express it in a way that honors God and edifies the body. Don't look down on your brother or sister if they have more or less freedom than you. Yeah. You know, one of the mistakes that we tend to make is we think uh, all quiet people are not worshiping. Not true. All, All shy people are not really engaged. Not true. They're just wired differently. And then we make the other mistake that people that are very expressive in worship, that they're over the top and just being very emotional. Not true. And so we've got to give freedom in the house of God to express worship the way that's authentic to us while we pursue the biblical ideal, which is spirit and truth in worship with our full lives. Some of us could take more freedom. Some of us could experiment with that maybe just on our own in our house, just put out a worship CD and, and, and try expressing worship a little bit more intentionally and see how God will bless you. There's a really powerful lesson in Matthew 17 when Peter, the apostle, goes up the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John. Jesus is revealed to them. His manifest glory is presented to them and they are like, wow! The biblical word is transfigured, Right? He's transfigured. Jesus sort of appears in white, dazzling garments before them. And there's Moses and Elijah, who are long dead, but they're alive because they're, they're with God. And uh, they come for a visit on that mountain. And Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus stands where? In the middle, of course, because he spans it all. And uh, this is a dazzling encounter with the presence of God, and there's a cloud there, right? And, and so, you know, Peter, James, and John are just taking in this moment of, of transcendent glory and wonder and awe, and it's all going really good until Peter talks, and he wasn't supposed to talk, but you know Peter, hey, Lord, he says, um, this is like really good. How about we make three tents, three, three kind of tabernacles, one for you, of course, and one for Moses and Elijah because they're up here too, and we could all just hang out up here. He wasn't supposed to say anything. <laughs> and then the voice of the Father comes. This is my son. Listen to him. <laughs> Oof. Peter's like, oh, man. I blew it, just like David back in the Old Testament. I didn't recognize the presence of God in the way I should have. And we don't hold that against Peter. He moved on from there, of course, and we learned a lot about his passion. One thing about Peter is he didn't didn't lack for passion, right? It makes me ask the question again, do I passionately worship God? Or do I live in fear? Am I afraid to lift my eyes up? Am I afraid to stand in the presence of God? Am I afraid of what people will think of me? Or do I actually put Jesus on a throne in my mind and say, God, you're already there, even though my imagination is is perhaps sanctified. I know that you're there. I know that you're there, and I will worship you with full engagement. I hope that we do. Finally, 
Am I seeking to live my life in the presence of God? Back to David, I think that David came to a conclusion that, you know, once the ark was in Jerusalem, he wanted a nicer building for God's presence to be housed in. Not that you can house the presence of God. But he wanted to build God something, and, and, and so he, he has this moment where he, he plans something. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7 at verse 1. It says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I think God is saying to David, noble gesture, not necessary from you. And David is stunned by what God says to him later on. David just wants more access to the presence of God. David wants the the setting to be beautiful and elaborate, and it should be. Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, go do it. Whatever's in your heart, God's with you. And then God says to the prophet, Nathan, you got that one wrong. So Nathan goes back and says, "Um, here's what God has to say to you, David. Look at verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is saying to David, great desire, David. Thank you, but not from you. Solomon will build the house. Why? tells us later in 1 Chronicles 22, because David shed lots of blood. He was a warrior. And God said, yeah, you are the warrior king. Solomon will be the king of peace. And I'll, I'll let the house for me be built through him. And he will establish a, a place, a temple, where my glory will dwell. And you can read about it in the scriptures. But David, your heart is good. Because you long for the presence of God and you can't live without it. And you want everyone else to get in on it. The real key for David is to realize God does not live in boxes. Can we own that one too? God is not restricted to a box called a local church building. You got to meet somewhere. You might as well have heat. But really, does it matter where you meet? You might need some lights and you might need some chairs. But God dwells here not because of this building. God dwells here because of you. He's in you. And so we miss you when you're not here. We just we got to be together. Why? Because it's, it's the calling of God for us to gather as a community, interconnected to each other, worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. There's nothing greater than that especially when the Lord graces us with his revealed presence. Wow. 
Psalm 132. Invite the worship team up. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Wow. I put it this way. God's real church is a community that is defined by the presence of the risen Christ who dwells in her through the Holy Spirit. This is our great privilege, to be a people who are passionate about the presence of God. People who long for it. A people who can't live without it. And in our own personal lives, that ought to mean that there are moments in every day when I go to God myself, and, and no one else can do that for me. I've got to go there. I've got to seek the Lord. And sometimes I've had to pull my car over on the side of the road and say, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you. And I've I got to be somewhere, Lord. So ha- can it be quick? And he's like, no. And I've pulled over at times, and this just happened a while ago. And God's like, sit still for a while. I'm like, oh, okay. It's hard to sit still. But when his presence comes, everything else seems insignificant. Doesn't it? Everything else finds its rightful place. We're so driven. We're so time conscious. We're so segregated in our lives that we've said, God, you've got to fit into this slot. It's called Sunday morning, 11 a.m. And this slot over here in my daily devotions. And he's like, I'll do that, but I want more of you. I want more of you. I want to land on you in new ways. I want to draw you deeper than you've ever been before because I'm in you and I'm with you. So I want to lead you in a prayer moment to respond to the presence today. And I don't know what that means for you, but I know that many of us just need to take a moment to respond. Would you bow your hearts with me? Presence of Jesus, come. We recognize you by faith and we rest in you. Presence of Jesus, come. Presence of the Father, come upon your children. Come now. Descend on us, Lord. Settle us down. presence of the Holy Spirit come. We welcome you. We welcome you in this place. Lord, I pray that you come like fire anything from us that's offensive to you that we might be a pure people forgive us for our sins corporately corporately forgive us forgive us for the times we don't recognize you for the times we hurry and rush through important things but they're not so important if you're not there 
forgive us for a lack of prayer and a lack of hunger. And God, I pray now that you would pour into our lives a desire and an appetite for you that will change us and make us long for you and seek you and find you. So meet us as your people, Lord Jesus. We wait on you right now in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Bless your people, Lord. Bless your people with the gift of your presence. Thank you for the grace that has been poured out on us today. The grace that holds our lives together through Jesus. Thank you for the invitation, Father, to press nearer to your heart. We say yes to that. So, Lord, fill this house. Fill this house with your presence. Fill every heart, every life, every family, every single person, every teenager, every senior. Fill us all with you. For nothing else will satisfy. And we are satisfied when we have you. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless us as you send us out of here to carry your presence into a world that needs to see and sense you. We say yes to that. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You guys are awesome. Since you've really absorbed him today. And uh, I just encourage you, all week long, stay, stay focused on him every hour of every day. If you have a need, come on up to the front. We'll minister to you. Our ministry team will be here. God bless you. We'll see you soon.